Sorry, I have to do my cursor here. Okay. Um, we were talking recently about um, Dogen. Well, first of all, Happy New Year. <laughs> I hope you're all safe and dry and your homes and safe and dry and everything's, I know some of you live in more vulnerable areas, so I hope everything's okay. Uh, and it's always good to stop and think of those who are not so fortunate. And um, have our intention be for their well-being. Um, and one other aside before I start this talk, which is going to be a little different than I usually do, is tomorrow <clears throat> is the 35th anniversary of Shinchu's in mind ordination. So that's kind of fun. You having trouble hearing? Yeah, just wave if I, uh, you know, especially when my allergies are bothering, my voice tends to soften. So just because. So <clears throat> we've been talking recently about uh, Dogen, Dogen Zenji, the founder of, uh, well, we talk about him a lot. <laughs> but recently somebody asked if we would give talks on who he was. So I'm going to start off today. And then Shinji's going to pick up the ball and finish something. So this is um, this is a little bit different than uh, my usual Dharma talk. Um, but I think we know that every tradition is woven from and expresses the lives and uh, the realities of the people who live it. So it it comes to us from specific people, and um, There are people that we remark on, like Dogen, like various people that we say, oh, well, we, we remember them. But I say this over and over again, often the realities of the people that we came, the people that came before us, the people that gave us what we receive here, um, fade into the background. So um, either they're not recorded, they're not remembered, um, they're not valued. Um, but they are there. So even when we talk about Dogen Zenji, this, this wonderful leader and teacher, we have to always remember and cultivate gratitude for all those that we don't name. Sometimes we have words, um, but in the case of our tradition, we also have the physicality of what was handed down to us, the way we hold our hands, the way we move our bodies, the way we sit. And there's something about that that can't be articulated, but can be transmitted. These are our guides to us. And um, they bring us alive to the tradition. They, they make a living connection. So we bring our own assumptions, our own cultures, our own biases, our own limitations, our own blindness to what we receive. 
And that also interacts. And so we have to, with dedication and effort, receive the teachings and keep um, weaving them into our being in a day-to-day -day lives and dis discovering, continually discovering what they have to offer us. The, the teachings um, have both a universal and a particular aspect. So they, again, rose from the minds and culture of particular people at particular times. And they, we encounter them in our lives with complete particularity. And yet they speak to something that's universal, what is common to us all. There is suffering, there is difficulty. We want to find happiness, peace, vigor, aliveness, appreciation for this life. We want to know its depths not just its surface. We want to know intimacy with all beings, with ourselves, with reality itself. So sometimes people say we want liberation and, and that's a good word, but it, it can also fool us into thinking that somehow there's an escape hatch from this life, you know, like, like if I could just find the handle to the escape hatch. Mm -hmm. I could flip it and I'd be out of here, but that's not uh, that's not our way. Our liberation, as Dogen Sanji said, is to the world, not from the world. So we stop and reflect and we say, what does this mean? Who inspires us to find out? Who are they? We have stories of those that came before, and sometimes there are some pretty fantastic elements to them. There are stories about Dogen. I don't think I'll really share any of them with you today that it was like, you know, him being guided through a storm and on the, on the boat by cannon on a leaf and, you know, it, it, uh, bells that didn't exist ringing in the mountains and all kinds of things. But I think we can just, um, skip the more mythical elements. Um, so who is Ehe Dogen? First of all, you should know that Buddhism came to China, uh, came to Japan 400 years before Dogen was born. And it came not from China, but from Korea. And the first uh, ordained people in Japan were women women who became nuns and went to Korea and studied. So um, I, I like that. <laughs> um, Dogen was born in medieval Japan and inherited the culture of Japan and China and found his way in it. His way of expressing the teachings is deeply informed by his gender, his class, his family, the political and cultural and physical realities of the time. And yet he speaks to our common humanity. We hear him. If we listen, we hear him deeply, intuitively in our bones and we respond. So we can think of Dogen's life in stages, his early life, his initial time exploring and finding his way in Buddhist practice his time in China and after his return from China, his time establishing um, monasticism and writing the many, many things that he wrote. He was born in 1200 
at the end of what was known as the Han period and the beginning of what's known as the Kamakura period. So you don't remember all this stuff, but it, it's important to know some of what was going on. So the Kamakura period in Japan was 1185 to 1333. And his family history is interesting as he was born into the elite, one of 11 brothers and sisters, many of whom went on to take places at court. And, and he was also born into a family that tied together two aspects of an ongoing power struggle. So this was a time of tremendous social change. The old aristocracy of the Fujiwara clan in Kyoto was still powerful, but it had lost its fundamental basis. It was challenged and bested by a warrior clans of the Kamakura. So in Kamakura is not too far from Kyoto. So there was a lot going on there. The emperor was a part of the Fujiwara clan and he clung to power, but really this, there's a major war in 1221 that like put an end to that. So the life of the aristocracy to which Dogun was born was wealthy. They had enormous estates and leisure. They were protected. They were elite. They focused on mostly two things, aesthetics, art, poetry, the refined, so-called refined aesthetics and political maneuvering. That was, that was their life, inward looking, uh, basically a life of privilege, not really connected to ordinary people or really concerned about ordinary people. This, um, the sense was of fate or sometimes karma, like this is ordained. I'm a member of this elite, so we don't have to worry about anybody else. And there were two aspects to this aesthetic sensibility the affective quality, the emotional quality, beauty and appreciation of beauty and crafting language and responding in this affective way and impermanence, the reality of impermanence. So um, in 1185, this was 15 years before Dogen's birth, there was a, a decisive battle and the Minamoto clan took power and established a feudal government. This set a way of life based on warrior clans. There was much infighting, warlords, much bloodshed, much vying for power, terrible suffering. Ordinary people were downtrodden and miserable. So the Fujiwara clan still had power and it was this kind of class thing, like they were the elite and the uh, Minamotos wanted recognition from them, but they are the ones that really had the reins of power. So this, uh, rife with difficulty. So there's a lot more detail that we could go into, but basically I want to get you and give you an idea of the social upheaval that was happening in Dogen's life. The fighting, 
80% of the land was owned by the elite, tax-free. Struggles, armed. There were also armed monastics at that time. Monasteries had armies and they were in the mix. So monasteries had big lands too. So there was, no, there was like, there's a mess. The Fujiwara clan dominated the monasteries. So this is the aristocracy dominated the monasteries as their political power waned. Guess where some of the men went to have power to the monasteries. Does this sound familiar to you? So uh, many of the monasteries, the old traditions centered around religious rights to protect the government and the elite. There were also a lot of environmental disasters, fires, multiple earthquakes, major storms. So in general, there was a sense of apocalypse. In this time, there was this teaching that was old in Buddhism that there were um, basically three 500 year ages. The first one started with the Buddha's birth in which authentic practice teachings and enlightenment were possible. So it was really possible to do the do and become enlightened, so-called become enlightened. The next 500 years, well, there was teaching and there was practice, but really you couldn't really wake up. You're too far away from the life of the Buddha. Um, then the next 500 years, which is considered during this time, was the age of Mapo, the age of decline. And during that time, there was no authentic practice, only kind of the shell of the teachings and no possibility of awakening, right? And a lot of the schools signed on for this, but not Dogen. He never signed on for that. He never accepted Mapo and instead saw human beings as capable. So um, there were a lot of older forms of Buddhism. And then uh, there were these new forms that came up, which I'll talk about in a minute. Dogen's father was in the Minimoto clan, samurai clan, samurai's caste. His mother was from the Fujiwaras. <laughs> so you figure his life, his actual individual life took place at the site of all this tension. And he was uh, in the family. He was raised. Uh, his father died when he was two and his uncle raised him. Maybe his older brother, they're not quite sure. And raised him and gave him an aristocratic upbringing and an education to take his place at court. So he was meant to go into the family business and be in the um, elite. So he was trained in literature, in arts and all of this. And yet I had the sense that this samurai spirit, this kind of more earthy um, feeling was also a part of his life. He was supposedly brilliant. Uh, he apparently, according to the tradition, could started writing uh, poetry in Chinese at four. 
and studied all the Buddhist sutras and everything uh, by the time he was seven. His mother died when he was seven. So uh, you can imagine the impact that this would have on a young boy. He has said to have had a profound experience of impermanence, uh, watching the incense uh, rise from his mother's funeral pyre. And before she died, according to tradition, she asked him to become a monk, to practice Buddhism and save beings. So here he is, seven years old, his father's gone, his mother died, his mother asked him to become a monk. He's being prepared for this life in court. And there's a big turning place point at age 12 where you, you're supposed to take your place, right? Um, he decided not to, he left. He left everybody and went to Tendai. He went to um, a monastery where his uncle, one of the Fujiwaras was a senior monk. So I wanna read you something that he wrote about impermanence. As you can see, this is a well, well used book. <laughs> at each moment do not rely upon tomorrow think of this day and this hour only and of being fruitful to the way while given life even just for today for the next moment is uncertain and unknown the student of buddhism should think of the inevitability of dying while the truth is too obvious to be thought of if you thought in those words, you should not waste your precious time by doing useless things, but instead do worthwhile things. Of many worthwhile things, just one, indeed, all else is futile, is vitally important to the way of the Buddhas and ancestors. That is practicing Buddhism. So he also said, having a transient life, you should not engage in anything other than the way. This is an urgent and vital response to impermanence that, okay. So you get a sense, you get a sense of this boy. So at 12, he left and went to Mount Hie, which was a big deal, big deal temple, huge, important, prominent, powerful. he already had this burning question. And it was a response to a, to a teaching that was primary in his day. And this teaching is teaching of Hongaku, original enlightenment. This teaching is that all human beings are endowed with Buddha nature at birth, okay? endowed with Buddha nature at birth. There are a lot of manifestations to this teachings, some of them quite toxic, um, but for our purposes today, I just want to focus on the driving question that this teaching aroused in Dogen. This is what he said. If the teaching that all beings are endowed with Dharma nature, Buddha nature by birth, why did Buddhas of all ages undoubtedly in possession of enlightenment, 
find it necessary to seek enlightenment and engage in spiritual practice. In other words, if we're already enlightened, practicing to gain enlightenment is fundamentally problematic, right? Like, why do you need to do it? So why practice? So this was like this really burning question for him. You can see it threads through his whole life. He spent two years on Mount Hie and he asked this question and it's told that no one, the tradition says no one on Mount Hie was able to answer it. Okay, perhaps that's true, but there were a lot of monks on Mount Hie. I'm sure other people had thought of this. So maybe, maybe not, maybe he couldn't hear it. Maybe it was just the whole enterprise didn't suit him. The politics, the power, the warrior, you know, the military, whatever. He decided after two years to let to leave. It's interesting to note that this happened a bunch of times. Monks who had real questions would go to Mount Hie, stay and leave. This, uh, all of the new schools of Buddhism that formed during Dogen's lifetime before him and right around in there, all of them, all of the founders practiced at Mount Hie and were dissatisfied and left. So Honen who started Jodoshin, Shinran, I mean, Honen who started Jodoshin, Shinran who started Jodoshinchu, um, SI started Rinzai, Dogen started Soto, Nichiren started uh, Nichiren, which they recite the, the title to the Lotus Sutra, and Ipen, another form of Nichiren. All of these guys went to the standard religious training of the day and were not satisfied. And part of the reason they were not satisfied is because it did not address the needs of ordinary people. They wanted to address the profound suffering that was happening. There was also deep um, uh, folk religions, folk traditions in Japan that preceded Buddhism. They were like in the earth. This is not hard to see if you visit Japan. There's a lot of uh, complex earth-based traditions there. These traditions are non-hierarchical. They are earth-based, shamanic, tied to the seasons, and also mountain asceticism and purification. So this sense of going to the mountains. So uh, Dogen left Mount Hiei um, disillusioned. He went to visit other places, other teachers, and he uh, ended up, he did, they think he met SI, the Rinzai teacher, who had already traveled to China and um, made a deep impression on Dogen. So after a while, he settled for six years at a Rinzai monastery, Kenenji, um, with uh, SI's Dharma heir Myozen, and they had a deep and strong relationship. So. At Kenenji, we don't know exactly what he did, but it was a Rinzai monastery. So he obviously studied koans and saw a lot of zazen, right? You began to get a sense of all the threads that are coming into Dogen's life and what he's learning from. However, he was not still not settled. The question was not settled. 
and Miozen was planning a trip to China. So Dogen went with him. China was the cultural hub, the source, the North Star in many ways, culturally, linguistically, and in Buddhism. They left in, uh, they left and it was a, it's a major journey, two to three months on the sea. I read somewhere that maybe 50% of the ships didn't make it. So it was very dangerous. Um, there was a strong trade with China, but um, it was still a very dangerous sea journey. And it's interesting, if you look at Dogen's writings, there's often a lot of talk about being on the sea in a boat, in a boat, no land in sight. So they arrived at port and due to illness or not having the right ordination, it's unclear. Um, Dogen had to remain on the ship for an entire month. And I want to read you something that um, Dogen wrote about an encounter that he had. So here he is, he doesn't know anything about China really, except what he's heard. He has ideas about monasticism. He's young, he's probably fairly arrogant and he's from an elite class, right? But he cares about the world. So while he's on the ship, an old Chinese monk, they say 61 years of age, how they know that, I don't know, visited the ship to buy some mushrooms. He was the chief cook at a monastery, which was 85 miles away from the ship. Dogen got into a conversation with him. And Dogen, paying respects to the old man, he asked him to stay overnight and talk some more. The old man, however, declined and insisted on returning to the monastery immediately after he had bought the mushrooms. Shiitake mushrooms, by the way, they know that too, apparently. <laughs> Dogen did not understand why this man had to return in such a hurry, despite the fact that the monastic food in Dogen's view could readily be prepared by others. To this puzzlement of Dogen, the old man said, the reason for my being the chief cook at such an old age is that I regard this, regard this duty as practice of the way for the rest of my life. How can I leave my practice to other persons? Besides, I did not obtain permission for staying out. Then Dogen asked, why are you, a person of advanced age, engaged in such a troublesome task as being a, a chief cook, rather than practicing zazen or reading koans of the old masters? Is there any worthwhile thing in your work? To this question, the old man laughed loudly and said, you, a good man from a foreign country, perhaps do not understand the practice of the way, nor what words and letters are. Upon hearing this old man's remark, Dogen was all of a sudden shocked and profoundly ashamed. So they agreed to meet in the future. I read that to you because I want you to get a sense of what his encounter is with a tradition that values 
ordinary work that is not based on the elite, that values the work of the uh, Tenzo cooking and sees practice as something that happens in all aspects of our life. So uh, he encountered the, the cook much later on and um, the cook revealed something to him about realization. This was pivotal, pivotal to Dogen. So he left the ship, he traveled around to various places and um, was again, not satisfied. Um, he was deeply discouraged actually, again, and considered going back to Japan, but decided to go to the monastery where Myozan was, his teacher in Japan. And that is when he met Rujing, his true teacher, also known as Tendo Nurjo. So this was in 2024. So Dogen was 24 years old and he was immediately deeply impressed. So it's also said that Rujing was deeply impressed by him. So there was a, a immediately a close relationship between teacher and student. And Rujing said to Dogen, you can come to my room anytime, day or night with your questions. Kind of endless access. So Dogen set about practicing intensively and in, while he was in the Zendo, I, one of his buddies was sleeping. This is the, as the story goes. And Rujing said to the sleeping monk, Zen study is casting off body and mind, casting off body and mind. And hearing that Dogen experienced deep realization and his question was settled. This is this, opening, door open to his teaching of practice realization. That our practice is realized, is made, our, our teachings are made realized, realization is made real in our practice. There is no separation. You don't practice in order for something. Practice is an expression of realization. So Dogen remained with Rujing for two more years <clears throat> practicing, ripening, studying, settling. And then Myozen died. And he decided it was time to return to Japan with all that he was given. And also to take Myozen's ashes and um, effects with him back. He brought back many things. I think central is this teaching of practice realization, which challenges us deeply, doesn't it? Don't we think we're gonna get somewhere if we do something? What's it like, why, why would we just sit in useless sazan? But when we understand that it's our entire lives, sitting sazan, cooking, relating, every aspect of our lives is our practice. And it is in that practice that realization manifests we begin to understand something radical that he brought back. A few other things that are related to this. The first time Dogen saw the kesa put on his head. So as some of you know, in the mornings we sit zazen before we put on our robes, either the kesa or the raksu, which is also Buddha's robe. 
And after we sit Sazen for a while, we put the robe on top of our head and we say a verse. And it goes something like, great is the robe of liberation, field far beyond form and emptiness or field of awakening, wearing the Tathagata's teachings, saving all beings. It's said that when he saw that, he said, he wrote, he cried. So there's many circumstances in which Dogen says he cried. His sleeves were wet with tears. So you, you have to understand this is an emotional dude. You know? He's got feelings. He cares so much. So he had deep feelings about the Kesa and he talked much about the robe itself, that it is Buddha's robe. He also brought the forms of monastic practice that he experienced at, um, in China that expressed this way we organize ourselves in order to express realization and a, a commitment to embodied, dignified behavior and practice. This physicality. He brought back the importance of the role of temple administrators, cooks, and the importance of work and deep practice. He also was able to see transmission documents, which were usually kept secret, and incorporated that into his understanding of Dharma transmission. What does it mean to authorize teachers? He emphasized Zazen in the monk's hall and in togetherness, being together in the monk's hall and organized even the buildings in such a way to emphasize that. He also uh, started doing um, more formal and informal Dharma talks where brought people together. This was something that happened in China a lot. He did not see what he was bringing back as a new school of Buddhism. He saw it as Buddhism. He was very clear about that. He said it was a serious mistake to start setting up a new school, even though that's what happened. So there is much more that we could say about this, um, but I'll leave it to Shinchu to fill in the gaps and carry the story of our venerable ancestor forward. But I hope that this has given you some idea of who he was and is, and um, given us some idea of where he came from. Questions?